episode 169 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett. This week on the podcast is the third in our special series of episodes put together in conjunction with our friends at the GET conference on the cutting edge of research science and technology. In this week's episode, we're exploring the topics of genomics and life extension with some really fascinating interviews by Dirk Niemeyer with James Crow of the Human Immunome Project and George Church of the Personal Genome Project. Genomics and the science of life extension are inexorably tied together, whether we're talking about slowing down or reversing the process of aging to extend the human lifespan, or future breakthroughs in gene therapy and organ replacement, which might eventually enable humans to have indefinite lifespans. Let's start with our interview with James Crow of the Human Immunome Project. I'm James Crow. I'm the director of the Vanderbilt Vaccine Center in Nashville, Tennessee. Wonderful. Now tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing in Vanderbilt. Well, we're interested in the human immune system and all of its complexity and contradictions. Uh, The immune system is built uh, with the capacity to respond to any threat that comes in. And uh, it's fascinating to, to think, how does a single system respond immediately to such a wide diversity of threats that we encounter. How is the immune system similar or different to the greater ecosystem? Is the immune system like a micro, um, a microcosm of how the greater ecosystem in our world works, or are they different? The, some of the language you used when talking about the immune system took me yeah. to the ecosystem is why I asked that. Well, there are, I think you're referring to the idea of uh, self-organizing systems. So, the threats that we face, often uh, the microbial threats, they themselves are communities of or- organisms. And one of the fears, I think, in, um, that we all have is we face organisms that are constantly changing. They're hypervariable. So HIV changes in your body every day if you're infected, or flu drifts in birds. So there's these collections of organisms that are morphing continually. And... Uh, What we need is our own immune system to be able to do the same thing, to move and change and adapt very rapidly. And uh, the question is, what what is the genetics and what is the structure underlying that that rapid adaptability in our own system? So our system is, in fact, rapidly adaptable, and you're trying to understand why and how? Absolutely. Um, The genome of people is relatively small in terms of numbers of genes. It's about 10,000, well, it's about 20,000 genes, but four orders of magnitude. Uh, And yet the microbial threats that we face are millions or billions. And so we've got to figure out how to do that. And the the way the immune system has done it uh, is to use modules that are combined in combinatorial fashion. Uh, So using uh, sets of pieces and stringing them together has allowed us to make uh, incredible diversity of uh, recognition elements. And what is the nature of your research? Like, what what are some of the research tools or techniques that you're using to to try and figure all this out? Our concept is very simple, uh, and it spins out of the Human Genome Project. So uh, technology was developed to synthesize DNA very rapidly and cheaply, and this continues to be evolving because now we want the genome of everybody. Uh, and this is going to evolve into clinical care. So these sequencers are getting faster and cheaper. Uh, In the immune system, the challenge is there's not 20 or 25,000 genes. Each person may have 10 to the ninth antibody genes in them or a similar number of T cells. So the amount of sequencing that we'll need to do to get 
the genes sequence in a single person is enormous, and we want to get every sequence on the planet. Mm -hmm. So uh, we're just upscaling the sequencing efforts, and essentially we take blood cells out of people, and we get the antibody uh, expressed genes as RNA, and we sequence them. It's very interesting. Now, w there are some sort of big picture world themes that we're interested in, and I'm curious how you see your research fitting into that. And some of these will be obvious, but I, I'd like to hear them in your own words. So in terms of the future of life extension, helping humans to live longer, how, how do you think your research can contribute to that? Right. So uh, there's definitely immune senescence. So you, you see at the end of life there uh, is lower function in the immune system. And probably that in part is due as a degradation of your immune repertoire. You just lose uh, clones and your, your repertoire gets much smaller. Uh, we're taking sort of a broader view to survey the immune repertoire throughout life. So we're going to start at birth uh, and cord blood and look all the way to 100 years of age and look at the size and the complexity of the repertoire over that time. And we hope just by defining and describing the sequences that are present, uh, that'll give us clues immediately to uh, these issues of immaturity during infancy, uh, high competence during healthy adult life, and then the immune senescence at the end of life. What about um, in terms of life enhancement? So not necessarily helping people to live longer, but to make the life they live a better life? Well, there's several ideas there. One, um, the most important biomedical advances of the 20th century were really vaccines. So hundreds of millions of people died of infectious diseases prior to vaccines. Now, uh, many of us get 30, 40 vaccines, and we never, we never know that we're encountering these organisms silently and safely. So I think... Um, the principal enhancement that we're going to get out of uh, understanding immunity is even better vaccines, but we might extend the idea of vaccines beyond infectious diseases to things like cancer or um, neurodegenerative disease and that sort of thing. Um, and then the opposite is true. Many diseases are due to the immune system gone awry, such as autoimmunity, rheumatoid arthritis, or these types of diseases. And if we can learn how to turn the knobs on the immune system and modulate these repertoires so we get more of the good things we want and then we turn down the, the autoreactive things that we don't want, having that knowledge will help us to avoid infections, cancers, and, and also autoimmunity. Next, we'll hear from George Church of the Personal Genome Project. I'm George Church, professor of genetics at Harvard Medical School and founder of the Personal Genome Project. Excellent. So tell me about the work you're doing at the Personal Genome Project. So uh, this started about 11 years ago with uh, an article, a couple of articles, one in Scientific American, one in MSB, on uh, the idea of, of, make, of uh, changing a few things about human subjects research, in particular, um, that people should get access to their own data, that they should not be, they should not think of themselves as so de-identified that they have no rights, that so de-identified that no one can re-identify them, because that was already a problem 11 years ago, and uh, data escape, um, and most importantly, the encouraging sharing where you, uh, where you, or all the subjects know what they're getting into, they're not signing some long document written in legalese. 
And, and then finally, as a testbed for testing new technology and integrating all different kinds of data sets and getting lots of different studies that all could use the same cohort. That was all of these things that I just mentioned were unprecedented in 2005, and now they're actually getting pretty close to standard practice, at least within our project. Yeah. So given that it was unprecedented back then, what was the inspiration for you and the other leaders to, to make it happen in this way? This yeah, way? so what happened was I uh, had written a grant um, uh, Center, and we got the grant, Center of Excellence in Genome Science. It was a big grant, and it had a component in it for ethical, legal, and social implications of the research. And, uh, and I, um, the NIH, uh, even though they fund, fully funded the grant, they, they were a little concerned about that. I mean, actually, I didn't know they were concerned until I went and got IRB approval for that part. The grant was to develop technology for next-gen sequencing, which we did. And, uh, and we jumped from a, a goal of doing a million base pairs, basically, to an actuality of doing five whole human genomes at six billion base pairs each, so 30 billion from one. So we, we promised one million and we delivered 30 billion. Wow. And, uh, and, and as we got to the point where I thought we were serious about doing human genomes, I said, gee, we should get, I should learn more about human subject research, and that's how it all started, basically. And then, and then also to try to get the NIH convinced that we should be able to do the ethical, legal, and social implications section that we wrote, uh, I got uh, a, a law student um, and a, a bioethicist, Jean-Tien Lonsoff, um, to help me write white paper, which then became a, a bioethics paper in Nature uh, Genetics. Excellent. So there's a few themes that we're interested in in terms of the uh, Dan future. Vorhouse, sorry, was the was the uh, was the law student. Oh, great. Yeah. Great. Thanks for mentioning Dan. Yeah. yeah. There's a few themes that we're interested in for sort of the future of humanity, and I'm, I'm interested in how the work you're doing you see fit into that. So um, human life extension and humans living significantly longer lives yeah. is something we're interested in. How is the work you're doing going to contribute to that? Right, so we have a number of projects in the lab uh, focused on human gene therapy, and, and the Personal Genome Project has been providing us with um, cell, cellular as well as information resources. So we have one of the few cell uh, resources, that, like induced pluripotent stem cells, that's freely available and comes along with it, all the documentation of a real person rather than something, um, you know, uh, where, where you don't really know what the induced pluripotent stem cells correspond to. Anyway, we've, we're using those and, uh, and animal models to test a lot of stuff that's in the literature, pretty well established on longevity or aging reversal in small animals, mm -hmm. and we're testing them in larger animals uh, and then in, in humans. And the gene therapy is a really nice approach because you can go straight from hypothesis to therapy without going out some... Uh, interminable and expensive search for a small molecule. Uh, and so we've got 45 gene therapies um, in the pipeline right now. Wow. Another thing that we think a lot about is life enhancement, and specifically where science and technology meet. We're starting mm -hmm. to see more concrete manifestations of cyborgs, you know, with yeah. things as simple as like the legs of an Oscar Pistorius um, becoming much more sophisticated things yeah. going into the future. How might your work help fuel life enhancement through? The synthesis of biology and technology. Well, I, you know, I would say that um, um, uh, eliminating diseases like malaria, polio, and smallpox. So, you know, we're almost done with the 
last two, but malaria is a big deal. Um, via gene drives is something that our lab is working on. Lyme disease is another. Um, along with Kevin Esfeld, who's now a professor at MIT Media Lab. Um, that would be a huge enhancement. Uh, getting off the planet uh, is, uh, we're all in danger of supervolcanoes and asteroids, so at least some of us need to get off, and that may require changes in radiation and um, osteoporosis, um, which may also be beneficial on Earth as well. I mean, there, and of course, aging reversal, I think, is uh, extremely important since 90% of us uh, are going to die of something that doesn't affect 20-year-olds, and, um, and it's a huge economic burden right now. I mean, we have this aging population, which are no longer working, although they, many of them would like to work, uh, and, and, they, and their health care costs are skyrocketing. If you could just give them an extra, you know, reverse their clock 20 years, they could go back to work and they could uh, reduce their medical costs to society. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The, the final theme that we're really interested in is the uh, progressive artificial intelligence and how over a longer time frame that will manifest some form of artificial life. Are mm -hmm. there ways in which you're already imagining the work that you're doing will inform and help lead what artificial life looks like? Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, we're, we're developing... Uh, Bacteria that are fu fundamentally different have a new genetic code, unlike any natural or synthetic bacteria prior to this. Um, but more importantly, on 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 the intelligence front, uh, I personally think that there's uh, that the most intelligent computer on the planet right now is a human, is a human being. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even though computers can do pretty well at non-human things like chess and Go and Jeopardy, um, they really can't do very well at, say, recognizing the side of somebody's face moving in a crowd, which, mm -hmm. which a three-year-old can do. Mm -hmm. um, and they, they can't do what Einstein and Marie Curie did on a good day. Yeah. Uh, so I think, I, th I think if we continue to improve that, which I think we can and will, there's going to be a lot of uh, motivation to, to get cognitive, to fight cognitive decline via cognitive enhancement. And that will be considered highly medically actionable. It's very hard to develop um, preventative medicines or, or augmentation on a healthy individual because the FDA sees it as you're only going to hurt them, right? It's all, about, it's all about safety, and I fully agree. Um, but developing things that help with someone who's got the early stages of Alzheimer's or maybe just pre-Alzheimer's has very high risk factors, that's easy to, to get. And also we're doing transplantation from pigs into humans. Um, you can make preventative medicine on the pig organs that are getting transferred that you would never get approval for changing the human organs in the human. Yeah, yeah. So that... One of the reasons I'm excited about the pig xenotransplantation is not just that we have a, a transplantation crisis, but it's also this opportunity of doing augmentation to make them cancer-resistant, aging-resistant, and um, pathogen-resistant. You, you would be very hard to get those three things approved in a, in a human, um, adult or otherwise. That's very interesting, both from a research and a regulatory yeah. perspective. Yeah. The last question is, of course, you're the impresario here of the GET conference. Um, tell us... You know, what, what are you hoping to have happen over these next couple of days? Why, why do you host this, and, and yeah. what should our people look forward to? This is an a absolutely unique and extremely exciting conference. Um, there really aren't even any 
decent imitators yet, uh, although I look forward to it. Uh, we are spreading internationally, and we now have five sites uh, over the world, uh, including Vienna and um, London and Toronto and so forth. But um, what's exciting here is, uh, and truly unique, is that, that we have patients, really participants is what we call them, um, who wear name tags. Uh, you know, this whole idea that we can protect your identity is something that we questioned 11 years ago. And, and, and so we recruited people who knew what they were getting into, knew that they could, their data could escape and, and get re-identified. In fact, the, the, the now, not just from research projects, but from your regular medical care, there are hackers that have hacked into basically everybody's medical records. So, so what we predicted in 2005 is definitely true today. And the, the value of your medical records is now 10 to 20 times higher than the value of your credit card because your credit card is temporary and your, what, what's in your medical records, including yeah. your mother's maiden name and your social security number and all this stuff, are semi-permanent yeah, yeah. Uh, misguided uh, identifiers, but they're, they're there anyway. So, so we, anyway, this conference is something where we allow, where, where people uh, get together, the participants who are the human guinea pigs, the engineers that are making fu fundamental changes in technology, and then the, the you know, uh, medical researchers and so forth. They can all get together and, and exchange notes. And each year we get more data on the, on the cohorts. So the cohort becomes more and more valuable the more data we have. So it's not just genomes and microbiomes and, and viral analysis and, you know, uh, fMRI of the body and the mind and so forth. It just keeps getting bigger and bigger. And each new one that comes in doesn't have to do all the stuff that was done before. Or they benefit from the um, prospective uh, time series data that we have. Listeners, remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we are mentioning here in real time. Just head over to thedigitallife.com, that's just one L in the digital life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening, or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find links to the complete interviews and others from the conference in the resources section for this episode. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at goinvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O dot com. So that's it for episode 169 of The Digital Life. I'm John Follett. And I'll see you next time.